Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Dusty Springfield. The British queen of white soul, crowned in a big blonde wig. A self-critical perfectionist who made a nearly perfect album as she drowned her insecurities in drama and drink. A larger-than-life vision of post-mod glamour with a sound straight out of London by way of Motown. But this isn't about Dusty Springfield. This is about Norma Tanega. Dusty's lover and, for a while, her homemaker and sometimes songwriter. A one-hit wonder herself who never stopped making art. A free spirit whose life went places Dusty could never allow herself to travel. This story is about a girl. They spoke to each other for the first time through the dark. It was 1966, and Norma Tenega was at the BBC's television studio in Manchester, UK. This wasn't anywhere Norma had ever expected to end up. She was 27, born in California, a singer-songwriter whose unlikely hit had carried her all the way across the ocean, much to her own wry amusement. She was supposed to be rehearsing for that evening's broadcast, but someone had shut all the lights off. It was the middle of the afternoon, and the studio had been bustling all day. But she'd emerged from her dressing room to find it was all but deserted. Norma hesitated in the shadows, confused. As she waited there, she thought again of the striking blonde singer who'd also been rehearsing there that morning. A British girl going over her song again and again with a perfectionism that made Norma feel like a rank amateur. You don't have to say you love me, the British girl sang, in luscious mezzo-soprano dripping with soul. It didn't sound like the kind of voice that could come from someone that blonde, but there it was. Now, Norma spotted her again across the shadowy studio. What's going on, Norma asked. Where's everybody? How come they turned the lights off? 
So that was their first conversation, there in the dark. A detailed explanation of British Union rules regarding the sacred tradition of the afternoon tea break. The girl's name was Dusty Springfield. Of course, Norma had heard of her. Dusty was already a star. She'd broken into the pop world a few years earlier, at the same time that the Beatles erupted onto the scene, projecting all things British into the cultural atmosphere. And just like them, she soaked up that exhilarating mix of American rhythm and blues, country, bluegrass, and early rock and roll. And she wrung out a new take on it. With her bouffant wig, elegant wardrobe, and her carefully made-up eyes, Dusty's image had been crafted to deliver the hip-shaking sound of Motown in a non-threateningly white package. But she was also eager to introduce British audiences to the real thing. The year before, she'd used her own success to launch a tour of England with The Supremes, Martha and the Vandellas, Stevie Wonder, and Smokey Robinson. It was clear to Norma as they talked that Dusty's passion for American music, specifically Black American music, was genuine. And it was apparent to Norma that there was more to Dusty than met the eye. Just like her sultry voice, her personality didn't quite go with her image. She was witty, sarcastic, confident, flirtatious. Norma hadn't heard anything about Dusty Springfield being into girls. But then, she really wouldn't have. Officially, in 1966, there were no gay pop stars. David Bowie was still a spotty teenager. He wouldn't show up to turn sexual conventions inside out for another eight years. Fans loved her recordings, but still, the success of Dusty Springfield was contingent upon her image as an elegant chanteuse of the straight variety. But right now, she was definitely flirting with Norma. How could you not love her, she thought. There wasn't time to do anything about it that day. A pity. Dusty was dazzling, if you like ladies, and Norma liked ladies. And when she finished her tour and got home to the United States, to her apartment in the village in New York City, her phone rang. They got to know each other that way, 3,500 miles apart, talking for hours on the phone. Little by little, they learned about each other. In a lot of ways, they could not be more different. Dusty told Norma about growing up as a Catholic schoolgirl named Mary Isabel Catherine Bernadette O'Brien pudgy and bespectacled and brunette and in the thrall of the nuns. She got the name Dusty from playing football in the dirt with the boys. She'd been a tomboy, she said, but she'd never had the courage to really be a rebel. But she was born to be a singer. She had a lovely voice, the only beautiful thing about her, she thought. Her father played the piano and loved jazz. Their phonograph was always playing Jelly Roll Morton and Ella Fitzgerald. And when she was 12, she recorded a song at the local record store, a vaudeville number from a Judy Garland film with more than a hint of minstrelsy to it. She sung it with the African-American vernacular drawl she learned from her father's records. American movies were a big influence, musicals especially. From these, she learned that a singer had to be feminine, a singer had to move gracefully, wear beautiful dresses and have perfect hair. Dusty's lifetime affair with peroxide and wigs had begun in 1961 when she was part of a musical act with her brother, Dion. They called themselves the Springfields and Dion changed his name to Tom. 
If she couldn't be black, she decided she might as well be blonde. Anyway, she thought her blindingly platinum sweat-backed bouffants might help distract audiences from her heavy, masculine jaw, her outsized nose, and her workman's legs. A lot of who Dusty was came from a loathing of who Dusty had been. In return, Norma told Dusty about growing up in Long Beach, California, the daughter of a Panamanian mother and a Filipino-American father. Her dad had served in the U.S. Navy aboard the USS Hornet. He was a naval band leader. He played the violin to her mother on a cruise through Panama. And that was how Norma came into the world. Norma inherited her father's musicality. By the time she was 16, she was giving classical recitals. But she also loved painting, covering canvases with colorful mythological figures out of her imagination. After college and an MFA in painting and printmaking, She moved to Greenwich Village, where she made art, wrote songs, and protested the war. She was an artist surrounded by artists, an activist surrounded by activists. She got to know Bob Dylan. They talked for hours some nights. She listened to every record she could get her hands on. But artists have to eat, so she found a job as a guitar-playing camp counselor at a Jewish summer camp in the Adirondacks. Somebody there heard her perform and connected her with a record producer. Her first album came out in 1966. The song that made her career was called Walking My Cat Named Dog. It was a song about walking her cat, who was named Dog, but it was also about drifting philosophically through the city, content to be lost. The producer added a Motown bass to Norma's folk composition, and the result was a track that went to number 22 on the U.S. Billboard chart but was a runaway hit in England. Shocked and sometimes disgruntled, Norma found herself on tour, playing stadiums. No one seemed to know just how to take her. The song she wrote didn't quite sound like anyone else's. Bluesy and folky with unexpected chord changes, and Norma's warm, low voice singing poetic, cryptic, prosaic lyrics. And she didn't look like anyone else in folk or pop music at the time. Often described as exotic, music reporters usually assumed she was Mexican or Native American. The label that released her record tempered this inconvenient otherness by having her straighten her hair. They got her some earrings and sent her to a dressmaker who put her in short mod dresses that were uncomfortable to perform in. At the time, she didn't quite get what they were trying to do which was make her look less ethnic, more generic, more white. Phone call after transatlantic phone call, as they talked through these dreams and obstacles, a closeness grew between the two women. Norma got used to the intimacy of Dusty's husky English accent in her ear. Dusty got used to the enormous phone bill. Finally, Dusty told Norma she was coming to New York so they could see each other again. When Norma walked into Dusty's hotel room, she barely knew what to do with herself. They were both so awkward. These unfamiliar faces and bodies attached to the voices who had begun this affair. I've come all the way across the ocean to see you, Dusty said finally. The least you could do is come across the floor to see me. And Norma did just that. It wasn't hard for Dusty to get her to move to London. Norma loved England. As a dark-skinned person, it was refreshing. 
In swinging London, she didn't feel the same oppression that simmered in the U.S. And of course, Dusty herself was a hell of an attraction. Norma moved into Dusty's flat in Ennismore Gardens. And at the beginning, they couldn't keep their hands off each other. A guest would later say he felt a bit awkward after his hostesses disappeared into their bedroom for three days, leaving him to fend for himself. Norma wasn't the first woman Dusty had lived with. Even though Dusty was in the closet, she didn't take pains to hide her living arrangements. Those in her circle knew what was up, and some of them didn't like the new girlfriend. Norma came off as brash, intimidating. She wasn't afraid to tell Dusty her opinions of the songs Dusty was working on. And for some of Dusty's British friends, that was not on. But to Norma, these conversations were an extension of the kinds of creative conversations she'd had with other musicians in the village. She loved talking with Dusty about music. Dusty would describe it as a river with different currents that all had to be balanced together. The emotion and tone of a piece had to mesh. This careful perfectionism got Dusty a reputation as a prima donna. She was well known for micromanaging every aspect of the production of her recordings, but it was something Norma admired about her. Dusty knew exactly how good she was, how good she could be, if she got everything just right. Norma understood. Dusty had to ride the river as far as it would take her. Armed with this insight into her partner, Norma became a vocal advocate for Dusty's vision, especially when Dusty herself faltered. Like her music, Dusty was fragile, layered, and sometimes contradictory. Different currents that had to be balanced. When Norma sensed her losing her balance, often as a result of anxiety or insecurity, she would not hesitate to speak up. A friend of Dusty's remembered Norma leaning over a television soundstage where Dusty was rehearsing to say, you can do that better. The friend was taken aback, but it was part of Norma's blunt nature in encouraging Dusty to not settle for anything less than the greatness to which she aspired. While some were put off by Norma's bold presence in Dusty's professional and personal life, it was pretty well understood that Dusty rather liked being dominated by the women she was involved with. Perfectionism was exhausting, especially for someone prone to nerves and self-doubt, and it was convenient to have a partner on her side fighting for her, and sometimes with her. But even skeptical friends had to acknowledge that Norma was trying to look out for Dusty, to protect her. By this time, with a slew of hits under her belt, Dusty was flushed with cash and spending it extravagantly. It was normal who persuaded her to buy a house. Real estate was a good investment, she argued. But Dusty was reluctant. The permanence, the responsibility. After months of deliberation, she finally caved. The story they liked to tell was that one day Dusty handed Norma a shopping list. Milk, bread, house. Dusty didn't just pick any house. She bought a seven-bedroom mansion in Kensington. She put Norma, the artist, in charge of renovations and decorating, though Norma sometimes got her to come along on shopping expeditions. You have all this money and fame and fortune. Let's go and spend it on something beautiful that you can see and have forever, Norma told her. Anywhere they went, the press followed. 
In furniture stores, they'd take pictures of Dusty jumping on a mattress to try it out. They had no idea that Norma would be sleeping on that mattress with Dusty. But Norma didn't care. People assumed she was Dusty's secretary or her personal assistant, her lackey. It didn't matter to them, though. Eventually, their relationship and Dusty's sexuality in general became something of a poorly kept secret. As long as it was kept from the fans, they didn't try hard to hide it, and the press was compliant and not pressing the issue. One profile referred to Norma simply as Dusty's flatmate. Norma transformed the Kensington house into a living and working space for the two of them. They hung one of Norma's paintings on the wall, an unfinished portrait of Dusty. Everything was painted pink and purple with orange accents. There was space on the two top floors for sheet music and recordings, space for a painting studio for Norma, space for Dusty's huge wardrobe, wig, and cosmetics collection, and for their shared enormous bed. But the ground floor was for parties. The parties they threw were legendary. Dusty knew everyone who was anyone who came through London. White British mods, black American Motown stars, drag queens, and even famous tennis players, of whom she was a huge fan. And the parties always ended the same way. Dusty and her drunkest guests would slosh into the kitchen to have an epic food fight. Norma was learning some odd things about Dusty, mostly fine with her because Norma liked odd things. For example, Dusty hit a tattered teddy bear named Einstein, and she liked to sew clothes for him. He might have raised a few eyebrows among the uninitiated, but hey, everyone's got something. Another example, though, Dusty threw things. Her parents had thrown things. She would tell people it was all for fun, but that was less than the truth. At the family dinner table, past the potatoes could sometimes result in the potatoes being launched through the air. Grains, chocolate rolls, the crockery were also common projectiles. The simmering tension of her parents' unhappy marriage exploding into shards and muck. As an adult, Dusty reenacted these scenes repeatedly, almost compulsively. Before parties, she would lay in a store of pies and go shopping for a fancy dinner service. Both of these things were expressly intended for throwing. At people, at walls, it didn't matter as long as it made a mess. This was Dusty's idea of an excellent time. But she would also throw things out of peak. Once, she hit a well-known restaurateur in the head with a dinner roll after she saw him berating her waiter. And when she was frustrated, backstage at a concert or in the recording studio, she would seize whatever came to hand. She could be terrifying when she was angry. Little by little, Norma would begin to see more of this side of Dusty. They usually fought about affairs. It seemed like Dusty found a new fling whenever Norma was out of town. She didn't hide it very well. In fact, she seemed to invite the ensuing clashes, and they fought bitterly over the indiscretions. Loud, passionate fights that inevitably started after midnight. They both keep their friends up late, calling at two or three in the morning to scream or cry about their latest battle. Billie Jean King, 
the tennis player, was one of the friends who was often their early morning referee, trying to soothe whichever one of them had called her. I thought I could help, solve things, make things okay, King would tell the reporter years later. It took her a while to realize she couldn't. Only a few years after they'd moved in together, this was becoming more and more the pattern of dusty, enormous relationship. There were other problems too. Norma had kept up her painting and she found a songwriting partner in Dusty's brother, Tom. He'd bring her his compositions and she'd write lyrics for him. These songs ended up on his next album and Dusty recorded several of them herself as B-sides for her singles. But Norma wasn't always credited properly on those recordings. Sometimes she felt as if Dusty's career was devouring her own creativity. She didn't want a career like Dusty's. Norma saw the tension constantly pulling at her partner and she realized that she herself could choose art or fame, not both. She just wanted to make art and music and it was feeling damn near impossible in Dusty's fame-choked world. Toward the end of 1969, she found herself alone while Dusty was away working on her latest recording. This time, it was Norma who found a willing partner. The previous year, Dusty had gone to the U.S. to record her landmark album, Dusty in Memphis. It was a lengthy separation from Norma, and Dusty immediately had another dalliance with a woman called Sandy, the friend of a friend. Dusty and Sandy had a wild time drinking, getting high, and of course having screaming fights to the degree that Dusty was unable to sing when the time came, her delicate voice completely shot. In fact, as a result, the Dusty part of Dusty in Memphis ended up being recorded later in New York. Norma had known something was up and called the hotel in Memphis repeatedly, adding to the rancor. All of this fed into Dusty's appetite for drama, But now that Norma had taken her cue and had her own liaison with another woman, Dusty was beside herself. The fights became bad enough by Christmas that Dusty's brother interceded, slipping a note under a door for Norma. If things were so bad, Tom wrote, maybe Norma should consider that it would be better if she went back to America. At first, Norma was upset and hurt that Tom was telling her to leave. But then, she began to think he might have a point. They weren't breaking up. They were just taking time apart. Anyway, Norma had never intended to stay permanently in London, and she had started to really consider recommitting to her art, which had taken a backseat to the dusty juggernaut. And Dusty had meanwhile talked about relocating to the U.S. with hopes of boosting her career. Norma had encouraged her, describing the possibilities to Dusty, trying to build her confidence. But with the bitter fighting, the idea of them going together seemed remote. That summer, Norma packed up her things to fly home to California. Around that same time, Dusty gave an ambiguous interview to Ray Connolly, a reporter with the London Evening Standard. Connolly asked her to talk about her vices, and wrote that she proceeded to do so with an enthusiasm that is almost self-destructive. I'm promiscuous, she declared, among her more mundane habits. 
I don't mean that I leap into bed with someone special every night, but my affections are easily swayed and I can be very unfaithful. A lot of people say I'm bent, and I've heard it so many times that I've almost learned to accept it. I couldn't stand to be thought of as a big butch lady, but I know that I'm as perfectly capable of being swayed by a girl as by a boy. If Dusty had ever been swayed by a boy, none of her friends had ever heard about it. But this was as close to a declaration of lesbianism as she would ever get. Then, as if trying to walk it back, she added, I could never get mixed up in a gay scene because it would be bound to undermine my sense of being a woman. It was a confession that raised more questions than it answered. Connolly had de-emphasized the potentially sensational angle. Dusty had not come right out. He didn't have any desire to drag her out. The piece was simply titled Dusty at 30, and as a whole seemed to capture a portrait of a woman at a crossroads. Notably, it mentioned her roommate, Norma Tenega, but then stated that Dusty was not involved with anyone at the moment. Was it the fact that Norma was leaving that made her break cover this way? Norma once said that she hated to see how much Dusty inhibited herself. Was she trying to prove that she could be uninhibited? Or was it the fact that she was planning to follow Norma, leave Britain behind and move to Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles? Was she throwing her secrecy at the wall just to see it smash? Whatever the reason, she and Norma would never live together again. Dusty moved to LA, but she moved in alone. In 1971, Norma got a contract with RCA to make a second record. She worked night and day with her producer, Don Paul, to make the album. She called it, I Don't Think It Will Hurt If You Smile. And it's a fully realized effort, richly evocative of its era, filled with oblique references to her love affair with Dusty. The album was released in 1972, but only in the UK. Norma was back in the States and didn't promote it. By then, she and Dusty were over. Later, Norma would always say that she and Dusty lived together in London for five years, even though it was more like three. She told reporters she'd moved home after her album came out for family reasons, even though she'd left London to put space between her and Dusty. The details of her biography became more fluid for her as the years passed something to be molded, interpreted like her art. For 50 years after her time with Dusty, Norma lived in Claremont, California, making art and playing music. She was never again famous for it, proving her hypothesis that art and fame could not coexist for her. What she cared about was pursuing art, creating, putting colors and sounds together in a new way. She also became a teacher, her first teaching job was at a Catholic girls' reform school. Here were girls, Catholic girls like Dusty, and just like Dusty, they were locked up away from the world. Norma was trusting. She told them stories of her adventures, of the wide world they had never seen. In return, they stole her keys. Norma switched to teaching English as a second language instead. But she also taught art at Claremont College where she'd been a student. She gave up the guitar and became a percussionist, working with an experimental potter who made instruments out of clay. 
Sometimes she'd play a version of walking my cat named Dog on the ceramic drums. She never completely lost touch with Dusty, though. They continued to talk from time to time, calling each other on the phone the way they had at the very beginning of their relationship. She was in touch with Dusty when she started drinking and taking drugs more and more. She was in touch with her when she held a marriage ceremony to a woman she met in an AA meeting. And she was in touch with her when the fights between Dusty and her new wife became so violent that Dusty was brought to the emergency room, bloody and bruised and missing her front teeth. Norma came to see her in the hospital and burst into tears when she saw how badly injured she was, with her mouth swollen and her face black and blue. She was in touch with Dusty still, years later, when Dusty had sobered up and was ready for a comeback, only to find out she had cancer. When Norma learned of her death when a reporter called her one day, how do you feel about Dusty dying? Weren't you involved with her once? She never spoke to reporters about Dusty. Sometimes she would just say that she left London and the pop music industry because life and that world tended to destroy the people who lived in it. Other times, she would say only that Dusty had been like family to her, a very human being, a fantastic singer. She had known geniuses, she would say, and she was glad she wasn't one. Dusty was a complex character. I don't even know how you would capture the essence of what she was about, she told the reporter. Then she added, if you've never been in love with a celebrity, you should try it. It was hard. She got to the core of their relationship with just three words. She heard me. Dusty Springfield was a gigantic talent, a name to be mentioned in the same breath as Aretha, appreciated more for her artistry today than she was in her lifetime. She's an inductee of both the UK Music Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Dusty in Memphis is widely considered one of the greatest albums of all time. And despite always keeping one foot in the closet, she became an icon for the gay community. And, well, this is kind of about her after all. But it's also about Norma Tenega, a soulful Latina artist who fell in love with the queen of white soul, who heard Dusty as Dusty heard her, who kept their love a secret, and who had to leave behind that glittering world for the pain it concealed. This is about two girls. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created by Eleanor Wells. This episode was written by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and composer. Matt Bowden provides logistical support. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and additional writing by Scott Janovitz. I'm Nikki Lynette. Thanks for listening. You can follow me at at Nikki Lynette on Twitter and Instagram, at Double Elvis on Instagram, and at Double Elvis FM on Twitter. If you like the show, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more great podcasts from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com.